0: I think perhaps the uh, appropriate subject to speak about, but I know that they said something about inspiration, but I'm sure that the kind of inspiration that's appropriate to talk about now has something to do with Purim, which is really a major point or source of real inspiration perhaps in the deepest sense, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about some of the depth behind Purim. I don't think we're scheduled to meet before, before Purim. is less than two weeks away. Let's try to examine some of the, the theme of, of what this month is about and what Purim is in terms of inspiration or the unique Jewish ability to shine light within the darkness or from out of the darkness. Is that acceptable? He always <coughs> says the following following thing. Not every word needs background, but Gamora says, Haman minatora minain. Where do we see the name Haman in the Torah? Where do we see the name of Haman in the Torah? And Gamora proceeds to find where that word, the name of Haman, I presume everybody here knows the story of Purim and who Haman was. and I presume that's correct, no? This is supposed to be the black belt session. (laughs) (laughs) Haman, that... That leader of the, or representative, if you like, of the nation of Amalek, which is that nation that is set up in the world to destroy the Jewish people, even suicidally, their the single reason for existence is our non existence. Of course, they are the force that drives all of that theme within the world, that is the theme of the destruction of the Jewish people, but they are the pure essence of destruction of the Jewish people. They, they have nothing other than. Than the destruction of of us, in their in their minds. In fact, a remarkable thing the the Kohen uh, Cohen says that Amalek has no, they have no source in the higher world. In, in in deeper terms, they have no tikkun. In other words, when everything is revealed, when everything is revealed finally as being in its correct place, when the spark of Kedusha, of sanctity, comes out of everything in the final, final revelation of the world's history, the final stage of the world's history. So even the worst things on earth will reveal what they were meant to do, what they generated. Even the worst, conceivable things on earth will show <coughs> what sanctity and what light was shone in the world by their presence. Amalek has none at all. None at all. There's nothing that reminds of him. It says, His end is completely a loss. The only thing that remains of Amalek is his destruction. The only light that shines from him is his utter, complete and utter disappearance. The reason is that his reason for existence, how do you say that in French? Beautiful. That, 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 that word is uh, the only thing that he has is our destruction. And therefore all that comes out of him in terms of positivity In fact, uh, one, of the, one or others, more than one of the commentaries say that the reason that, the reason that he, he ends in destruction, the reason that he has no existence, unlike all other elements of negativity in the world that have a spark of kedusha that comes out of them, the reason that Amalek has none is because he represents exactly the force of Medica Neged midah. Medica kineged midah. Because I'll say that all Hashem's middas in the world are negated. That means we don't see Hashem's conduct anymore. <laughs> in this chaotic period of the world's history, there's a lot that we don't see. But midda keneget midda always operates. We may not see it. There may be a hiddenness of that, of that quality, but it always operates. What is midda keneget midda? Measure for measure. That you get exactly what you are, you get exactly what you do. But what happens to you is only what you put out. What does Amalek want? They want the ultimate destruction of the Jewish people. That's what they want. Without the Jewish people, the world doesn't have an existence. The Jewish people are the connection between the world and its, and its source. If the Jewish people would ultimately be destroyed, so then the world would have no existence. The, the God of Ilna says that, that if it wouldn't be for Torah, which is what our responsibility is, if there'd be one second, the God says it in more than one place, that if the world would exist without Torah for even one second, the world would cease to exist. That means if there wouldn't be a Jew learning Torah. There wouldn't be Torah in the world. <coughs> Even for one moment, the world would disappear. The reason is that the world is a projection of the energy of Torah. It's nothing other. The world is nothing other than the life that's shown on the screen by the film projected through the film of Torah. If you pull away the film, there's nothing on the screen. There can be nothing on the screen. Therefore, if Torah would cease to exist for one moment, the world would automatically cease to exist. Amalek would like the Jewish people to cease to exist, which means no Torah. Instantaneously, the consequence of that would be that the world wouldn't exist and automatically he would not exist. So the middekhanegad admitted, you understand? The punishment that he gets at the end is that he totally ceases to exist. Why? That's all that he wanted. All that he wanted was the cessation of the existence of the Jewish people. The natural outcome and consequence of that is that there's no energy feeding the existence of the world anymore. The automatic outcome of that is that he could not exist. And therefore his ultimate... He only gets that which he attempted to do. (laughs) Now this leader of of Amalek, called Haman, who represents that that totally single-minded motivation to destroy the Jewish people. The Gemara wants to know, where do we find his name in Torah? Where do we find his name mentioned in the Torah? In Chumash, in Tanakh, in Chumash. Now that's a remarkable question. Before we try to pin down the answer, what's the meaning of the question? You know that, let's try and explore this. You know that the meaning of a name, (coughs) the meaning of a name always, (coughs) is the concept of an expression of essence. That should be well known and clear that a name in Torah is always an expression, not just a designation or something by which we signify a certain entity so that you know what I mean. In Torah it's not only that, it's a designation of essence. The name describes completely and thoroughly what that thing is. Which means when we say, where's his name mentioned in Torah? When we find the verse that mentions his name, we will find a context that describes exactly what his essence is, and his name will be mentioned in that context. And his name will express his essence. Where is his name mentioned in Torah? It means, the question means, where is the essence of that individual, in this case, Haman? Where is it stated in the blueprint, or the genes, or the film that projects itself onto the world? (coughs) In other words, (coughs) if you have a Haman on earth, (coughs) whose motivation is to lead a nation that destroys the Jewish people, if that's who he is, then then, there must be a source of that energy in the Torah. Since the Torah is the source of the existence of the world, as we, I'm sure we think we've discussed it many times here, the Torah is the source of the creation. It is the genes that give rise to the organism, and therefore it's exactly parallel, <coughs> or in modern terms, it's the film through which the light is shone, which projects itself on the screen. Therefore nothing can arise in the world unless it was there in the Point of origin. (coughs) If Haman exists in the world, with all that he represents, there must be a point of origin of that, of him and what he represents, in the Torah. And therefore, just like in medicine, if you wish to understand anything in the body thoroughly, you must go back to the genes. (coughs) So then we want to understand what Haman is, we must go back to the place that is mentioned in Torah. (coughs) Just like every word in Torah projects itself into the object that it describes in the world, not the most beautiful example of that without question is the fact that in Hebrew the word for an object and the word for a word are the same word. Huh? Tavar in Hebrew means an object and it means a word. There's no other language like that, there? <laughs> because every object in the world is nothing other than the word that the Torah uses which projects itself, beams itself out and crystallizes in the world as that object. Obviously they parallel. The word is the genetic construction and the object which is also called a word is nothing other than that energy crystallized in the world. And therefore, <coughs> this is not a historical or literary exercise. When the Torah wants to know where Haman is mentioned in the Torah, when the Gemara wants to know that it means, in order to understand what he is, and of course his role in our history and our response to his, to his life and what he stands for, where is he mentioned in the Torah? <coughs> now, and of course the Gemara does that with uh, it wants to know where Mordechai's name is mentioned in the Torah, where Esther's name is mentioned. Where is Esther's name mentioned in the Torah? Esther means to hide. Esther means to hide. Apart from the concept of a Jewish woman's modesty, which is the secret of our survival, a remarkable thing. It's because she hid who she was. She was able to keep silent and hide who she was. That's how we got saved. A remarkable thing. Again, you see that the salvation of the Jewish people (coughs) is entirely due to a woman's death. It's probably a misprint, but... (coughs) That's what it says. That's what it says. it was Yehudis. In Egypt it was a Jewish woman. But her name means hiddenness. Hastir, Astir ponai. I shall surely hide my face on that day. That's the word Esther. Esther means the concept of Hashem's hiding His presence in the world. That's what Purim's all about. That's why we wear masks on Purim. We wear disguise and we wear a mask to signify the fact that the world hides the presence of reality. Esther symbolizes that exactly, that's what she is. The name Esther is derived, this woman who was able to hide herself in her identity, her name is indicated, her essence is found in the sadness, the pain of Hashem's hiding himself within history. We'll try and see the greatness of that, of course. As well. But he's hiding himself in history so that we don't see him and that we live in darkness with all the brutality and the suffering and the pain and the conflict and the confusion that the world holds for us and has always held throughout our history. (coughs) But that's what her name means. Of course, it's a very small step to understand from there the fact that the Megillah mentions Hashem's name not at all. The Megillah is remarkable. The Megillah of Purim. The Megillah of Purim. is remarkable in that it's very, very unusual anywhere and throughout the scriptural writings that Hashem's not, name is not mentioned everywhere. <laughs> in the whole Megillah, Hashem's name is not mentioned. The word Megillah means a scroll. A scroll that is rolled. Anyone who knows Hebrew know, knows that the same word means Megaleh, which means to reveal. The whole concept of Purim is that in the hiddenness of the scroll, which is tightly wound, is a Gilui, is a Megaleh, just like the word Legalot in Hebrew. Now it means to reveal, it also means the darkness of exile in which the, the light of the Jewish people is hidden. That duality is all there in the same word. <coughs> the Megillah is that which, which, which hides, but when you read it correctly it reveals. But it only reveals if you have eyes to see. It doesn't tell you, you have to see it. Where's Hashem's name mentioned in the Megillah? There's only the very subtle hint that when it says the king, referring to the non Jewish king who was <coughs> bent on our destruction. <coughs> so, there, whenever it says HaMelech, the king, it really means Hashem as well. If it says Hamalech HaChashberosh, it means him. If it says Hamalech, the hint is that the beautiful hint that was included in the Megillah by, by not, none other than than, than, than and Esther, who wrote the Megillah, with a prophetic insight. Whenever they refer to the king of they say his name. But when they want to hint to us that what's happening here is purported or seems to be happening through the political moves of this king, but in fact is happening from the king who is his king, king of kings, so then it says only Hamalach. But it's a very subtle hint. You don't see Hashem's name mentioned explicitly. It's a story of hiddenness. And the whole McGill is a story of hiddenness from beginning to end. It seems like one political event and one coincidence and another coincidence and the king couldn't sleep and he happened not to be able to sleep on a night when it happened to be that Haman happened to step in and he happened to... you know, One coincidence after another with seeming no connections between them spread over many years that led from the sure destruction of the Jewish people to our salvation. Not just our being saved from that destruction, but our bringing the light of Torah into the world. Gemara says that was the real acceptance of Torah. Sinai was not the real acceptance of Torah. Sinai was coercion. Hashem held the mountain over the Jewish people and said, if you don't accept it, you'll die. So Gemara says, it's like having a gun put to your head. And uh, anything you do under that duress is not valid. The only reason we bound by Torah is because at Purim, when you couldn't see Hashem, we saw Him. And that's voluntary. If someone holds a gun to your head and says, accept it, and then you accept it, that's not binding that contract. But if somebody hides, and is completely voluntary, and is not present, <coughs> and then you accept so there's evidence that the acceptance that happened before was valid. So Purim's not just the time when the Jewish people were about to be destroyed and fortunately got saved. People think Purim was a time when, you know, we dropped potential destruction and we came back to survival. That's not the concept, not at all. Purim was a time when the Jewish people were heading towards that destruction. But out of that destruction we, we lifted the, the receiving of the Torah. We, we, we lifted out of that potential destruction the essence of what we are in the world. Not just that we were about to be destroyed one more time and we, one more time we survived. That was a survival that brought out. So the whole idea of Purim is the hiddenness, the fact that we don't see Hashem. And that's what the name Esther means. Now where do we find Haman in the Torah? <laughs> and how does it connect to this theme of hiddenness and what does it mean? <laughs> so let's put our minds into this and try to understand. Heman says we find Haman's name in the following place. Let's try and concentrate together and try and work it out. It's a... Tremendous amount to understand here. We find his name in the verse in which Adam, Adam, Arisha, and the first man, man and woman, had sinned. And after the sin, Hashem arrives in the garden and he approaches man and he says to him, Hamin Ha'etz, did you eat from the tree which I commanded you, from which I commanded you not to eat. Hamin haitz. Did you eat? Now, the word hamin is the word haman in the Torah, which is written with no vowels. That word hamin, which means, it's hard to translate. In fact, you can't translate it in English. It means did from. It's, it's, it's the syntax, it's that part of the syntax which indicates the question only. Again, the full sentence is, Did you eat from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? But the first word of that sentence, hamin, the question itself, did, did you do this? That word is Haman. That, now that, that, that needs a lot of understanding. What, what's Haman's name doing back at the sin of Adam? What does eating from the fruit of the tree have to do with Haman? What does that have to do with Amalek and Purim and the destruction of the Jewish people and our salvation and Torah? Secondly, <coughs> secondly if Haman's name appears then, it must be very, very central to the history of the world. Because we have a principle that the earlier on a thing appears in Torah, the more more central, the more seminal, the more more crucial it is. We have in fact an axiom, uh, you find in the the deeper writings, deeper sources, that the first time a thing appears in Torah always is an expression of its essence. Any time a thing appears in Torah is an expression of its essence. But, But when a thing appears in Torah, throughout Torah it may be one or other application of its essence. But the first time it appears in Torah is its deepest essence. And the first time a thing appears in Torah close to the beginning of the Torah is an expression of essence in the formation of essence of the world. In fact, we have an axiom that to discover the deepest essence of anything in the world, we look for where it appears the first time in Torah, but we specifically look for where it appears the first time in the six days of creation. Since everything in the world was created within six days, it follows that everything must trace its source to those six days. And therefore, when you find something referred to in, 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 in Nach, for example, in the prophetic writings, well, that's an application. Where does it appear in Chumash? That's a deeper root. Where does it appear close to the beginning of Chumash? You're getting close to the source. Where is that thing stated within the six days of creation? You're seeing the essence of that thing in its moment of formation. People of Torah greatness, whenever they trace a subject in Torah, they always will take it back to its point of origin. That, in fact, is what greatness is. Greatness in any field is tracing a thing back to its energies that are formative in the wisdom in any any technical subject even on earth. You'll find that the greatest experts are the ones who are able to take it back to the basic principles always. Wisdom means understanding the underlying principles not the distant applications. And in Torah of course always wisdom means taking a thing back to its ultimate source. (coughs) Of course you realize that not just wisdom, but in Torah permit me just a half a moment aside son of the depth of this. In Torah, everything's connected. When you trace the thing back to its root in terms of wisdom, that means you want to know where this detail comes out, you trace it back to its root, you must always be tracing things back to a common root, where all is one. If you're going back to the root of this thing, then you must be getting, and you're going back to the root of all things, then you must find where the root of this thing is in fact the same as the root of all things. <coughs> it's going to be a long night. Huh? <coughs> <coughs> Why is the root of wisdom tracing back a thing to where it appears in the beginning of Torah? Because the root of all wisdom is tracing all things back to the ultimate root, which is Hashem. Which means that a person who traces things back to the root will train himself to discover Hashem. The ultimate purpose of the spiritual path is to bond with Hashem and discover Him and build a relationship with Him. How do you do that? Everything in Judaism, when traced to its root essence, is always nothing other than that. Therefore, when you do something, nothing, nothing more significant than study a technical subject, but your drive in that subject is to understand what are the roots of the subject, you're training yourself to follow a thing back to its cause. If you discipline yourself well in that dimension, you'll eventually find Hashem. Example. Example. Many Balay Musa say, you see, in Musa, which is character building, obviously the same thing must apply. <coughs> One of the most important characteristics of a human being, and many sources say it's the most important, is gratitude. It's gratitude. <coughs> gratitude. Gratitude. <coughs> Gratitude, knowing where a thing comes from. It's one of the reasons that honoring parents is put in the in the Ten Commandments on the side not of human human interaction, but it's put on the side of man God interaction. That's a remarkable thing. You know, the first five of the Ten Commandments detail detail obli- obligations between us and Hashem. The second are between humans. Honoring your parents, which means tracing yourself back to your point of origin, that's put on the side of man. Divine interaction. Remarkable. You know why? Because you know not the messages. The message is when you trace yourself back to your parents and you discipline yourself to trace yourself back to origins, you will continue that process and you'll find the origin of the origins. In human, in human midas, what's the most important characteristic? Gratitude. Tremendous, tremendous unique quality. Why? Because when you show gratitude, what does gratitude mean? It means when you say thanks to someone, in Hebrew you see in English, thanks means thank you. But in, Engl- in Hebrew, it doesn't mean that. Modeh in Hebrew means to thank, but it means to admit. Because when I thank you, what I'm doing in essence is admitting that it's you and not me. That I could not have done this without you. It's an admission that I'm not complete. That I depended on you in this matter. What's so significant about that quality? Because when I admit that it comes from someplace outside of me and I trace it back to its origin, I'm disciplining myself to trace all things back to their origin. A person who manifests gratitude in human interactions will discover Hashem. The first time a thing appears in Torah is, a, is an exercise in tracing the thing back to its point of origin. That's why we're interested in, where does Haman's name appear in the Torah? Again, the first time a thing appears in Torah, this should be clear. The, 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 the Gemara, is e- an example. The Gemara says, one of the sages, one of the great exponents of, of Torah throughout the ages, the Vilna, is the one who makes this explicit for us. The Gemara says, If you see a tet in a dream, you know the ninth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right? if you see that letter in a dream, Yitzapel you should expect that something good will happen to you. Why? Because the word tov, which means good, begins with a? So therefore, when you see that letter in a dream, you should expect it's a sign that something good will happen. Comes along the Gona Vilna and asks the obvious question. There are many very bad words in Hebrew that begin with a tes. Plenty of very bad words in Hebrew begin with a test. So why should you know that it's a sign that something good will happen? says the God of Vilna, because the first time a test appears in the Torah is Ki Toi, and therefore, if that's the first time it swims into focus, its essence will always be this, the concept of goodness. Everything else will always be an application of that. And of course, the consequence is that even bad things that, that start with that letter must somehow be a peripheral representation of something that inwardly really is good. But the, the point is that now, if Haman's name appears If Haman's name appears at the very beginning of human existence, where does his name appear? The first time God speaks to man? The first, one of the first words? One of the first words that, that, that man ever hears from Hashem? Is the word Haman? Do you understand that? Do you know how significant that must be? Man heard another word first. What was that word? Where are you? Ayeka, where are you? He sinned. He ate from the fruit, and he was hiding in the garden. He was hiding under the trees. And Hashem walked into the garden. Again, you have to understand this in depth. This is not to be understood in childish terms. Childlike terms. Hashem arrived in the garden, and he said to him, Ayekah, where are you? And, 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 and Adam appears. And Hashem says to him, Did you eat? ha, min ha et? Did you eat from the... Of course he'd eaten from the fruit. That's why he's hiding. That's why he's in shame. And Hashem says, Did you eat? That first interaction, which is an interaction after sin... That shameful pain of humiliation and uh, admission of, it begins with Hashem. That's the word Haman. What's the connection? What does it have to do with Amalek and destruction of the Jewish people? And, and, and <coughs> Let's try to understand. What is Amalek? What is Amalek? This is really the subject of anti-Semitism and its root. Which is always with us. On my way in, the security guard told me that we should be aware that there have been attacks on Jewish communities in France today, or events by some nationalistic group that decides that their issue is connected with Jews for some reason. It's always like that. What is Amalek? Amalek is that energy, that nation that exists only to kill us. Let's understand this world. They exist to kill us, right? Their their essence in the world is destruction of us, even if it means their own destruction. That's how far they go. Why? Because they live only from our destruction. If they cannot destroy us, then they're not alive in the first place. What logic is there for somebody to throw himself suicidally into killing somebody else? What logic is that? The logic is that if you're only alive through his destruction, then life isn't, you haven't begun unless you've destroyed him. Okay, the Jewish people were coming out of Egypt. What is the history? The Jewish people, the history goes back even before that to and But let's, let's, let's freeze it at this moment in, in time. The Jewish people are coming out of Egypt. They're moving towards Sinai. Hashem is with them. It's a cosmic moment. And Amalek comes into the desert and attacks the Jewish people. And they attack the Jewish people suicidally. They got badly decimated, almost destroyed. What were they trying to do? You know, it says, Asher Korcha Baderach. We, who, who, well, when when Amalek came to attack the Jewish people, and they had this spiritual and military campaign to wipe out the Jewish people at the moment of the inception of the Jewish people, conception, inception of the Jewish people, about to receive Torah, and Amalek desperately threw themselves in to try to prevent that. The word the Torah uses is Asher karcha baderech. That means a remarkable word Unbelievable word It means they happened on you Happenstance, you know, coincidence They happened to cross your path In other words, <laughs> happened to cross our path They sought us out in the desert With the express purpose of destroying us The Torah says they happened upon you As if by coincidence The word Karcha means It means three things in Hebrew It means coincidence It means cold And it means sensual impurity immorality, the impurity of immorality, in the sensual area, that's what it means. (coughs) What's the connection between those three words? Amalek is the nation that wants to destroy the Jewish people. Let's think it through in its layers. They happened, we'll have to explain, let's start like this. What does it mean cold? They cooled us down. Rashi says they, they attacked us in order to cool down the fire of Torah that was coming down to the world through the Jewish people. They were suicidal and dangerous, but they did it. Rashi says, you know, in a classic and unforgettable marshal, they threw themselves at us like a man throws himself into a bath of boiling water. He gets badly burnt, but he cools the water. Amalek attacked the Jewish people, they got badly burnt, but they cooled down the fire of the world. The also say that at the moment the Torah was about to be given, the nations began to flock towards Sinai. The nations began to flock towards Sinai. The world, there was cosmic upheavals. The world, the world stood upside down. There were, there were cosmic revelations at that time. In fact, the nations of the world were so terrified by the revelations that were taking place, they thought the world was about to be destroyed. It wasn't just a unique event that happened to a few, a few people walking through a desert. The Baphoshim said that when the sea split, for example, all water on earth split. It wasn't just where the Jews were. All bodies of water all over the world split. The world was a witness to the giving of the Torah and the, the beginning of the Jewish people. And when these cosmic phenomena began to manifest, the non-Jewish nations began to flock towards Sinai. And what they did was they went to Bilaam. Bilam was the great prophet of the non-Jews, equal to Moses, and in some ways greater. Vashem say, in some ways even greater than Moshe Rabbeinu. And they went to him as the leader of the non-Jewish nations, the, the seer, the man with all, all the insight. They said to him, what does this mean? And, she, and he said, Hashem is giving Torah to His people. And the nations began to flock towards Sinai. Hashem giving Torah to His people. That's what it means. Let's go. What else is there? The Ramchal says any of them could have converted instantaneously. Any nation as a nation could have become part of us. Instantaneously. Now they can't. Only individuals. But until then they could have become a root. Part of the root. And they began to stream towards Sinai. And Amalek saw what was happening. And Amalek knew that if everybody comes to Sinai and accepts the Torah, they finished. You know Why? Because Amalek represents the distance between Hashem and the world. They live in the gap of separation. Amalek means, let's understand this deeply, Amalek means the gap between Hashem and the world. <coughs> the hiddenness of Hashem in the world. <coughs> the hastir, astir, <coughs> the fact that you don't see Hashem, you look at the world and it looks like a world. You look at a human being and they tell you that's not a human being, that's an advanced gorilla. And you look deeply and you say, you know what, they could be right. You don't see the divine glow inside a human being? And the whole world believes that? The whole world believes that? you know that the whole world believes? You know that? The first time in the history of the world they've finally gone so far that they ultimately have come to accept that the human being is absolutely nothing other than a biological organism. That's what the human being is. It's a monkey. It's a monkey. The human being is a monkey. Do you know what Amalek spells? Amal Kof, the work of the monkey. As to look human, but not be human inside to take the human form and make it animal. Which animal? The animal looks human but is not. <coughs> the mentor says the monkeys came from humans. They were a devolution of the human. <coughs> what do they teach? <coughs> that's, who, that's who you once were and this is what's become of you. <coughs> They've got serious doubts about whether it's up or down. <coughs> the next step is absolutely clear. The next step, if they're consistent, is either they will declare that humans have no rights Humans have no meaning and rights in their life, or they'll give human rights to animals. You know it was reported this week. I don't know if you saw. It was reported that in a certain place, a certain country, you don't. Uh, I'm glad to see you don't follow the news. <coughs> <coughs> but in a certain place, in a certain country, there's been a move, to a parliamentary move, to grant human rights <coughs> to the great apes. <coughs> Excuse me. Why only the great apes? What's wrong with rats? And, and, and mice and slugs and amoebae, what's the problem? They're confused. <coughs> There's a very much hustier and I don't see anything. No wonder Jews in this generation have no sense of themselves as Jews. The world out there has no sense of itself as humans. How can a Jew, an intellectual Jew in this generation, who's grappling with the question of whether he's human or monkey, animal, what relevance can it possibly have to him, whether he's Jewish or non-Jewish? <coughs> How can it possibly be meaningful? That's Amalek, the work of the monkey. You know that the numerical equivalent of Amalek? Sophek, doubt. Amalek means doubt. The certainty of seeing Hashem in the world, which is what Torah is and Sinai was, Amalek keeps the world away from Sinai. You understand the concept? Amalek's reason, again, again, again. Amalek attacks the Jewish people in a violent, illogical, anti Semitic, destructive battle to the death. That's what they do. <laughs> but you know what it means? If on the screen There's a nation Attacking the Jewish people What does it mean On the film In the source Everything always Has a higher reality The Ramchal calls it A (coughs) Koyach Nivdal Everything has a (coughs) Koyach Nivdal A transcendent force Which is its root What does it mean if one person attacks another? What does it mean if one nation has a nationalistic battle in which they attempt to wipe out the Jewish people? What does it mean in its root? You know what it means? That the spiritual force of Amalek wishes to see the spiritual force of the Jewish people disappear. Their spiritual essence is having us not around spiritually. There's a battle between the... What's it called? There's a cosmic battle in the root of reality between what the Jewish people must be in the world and what Amalek must be in the world. It manifests down here as a battle between two nations, but... They who wish to, to wipe us out and we who fight to survive. But what does it mean in the root? You know what it means in the root? That the Jewish people spiritually are the people who bring Hashem's knowledge into the world. We bring Hashem's presence into the world. We testify that He exists. You know what it says about Sanai, Atem Eidai, you are my witnesses. What does, Hashem, what, what does Hashem call us? What does He call us? Atem Eidai, you are my witnesses. You know the word Shema? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Oleg Hashem The Ayin is written big and the Dalit is written big. It spells eight. You're a witness. Every time you say Shema Israel, Hashem is one, you become a witness to Hashem's existence in the world. Do you know when you need witnesses? When you cannot see the thing. Nobody calls in witnesses when the thing is in front of you. The court does not call in witnesses when they witness the event. <laughs> the only time you need a witness is when it's not visible. Then you call in a witness. The Jewish people are the witnesses who testify to that which is not visible. Hashem's presence is not visible. No matter how long you meditate upon the world, you'll not see Him. You need witnesses who once saw Him. That's us. And who's Amalek? Oh no it's all, it's all, no, it's all coincidence, says Amalek. It's evolution. That's what it is. You're just a monkey. You accidentally became what you are now. You were once a slug and then you were a worm and then you were an amoeba and then you were a fungus. You happen to sort of look a little bit different now, but it's, it's coincidence. Even their lethal attack on the Jewish people was, they just happened upon us in the day. Do you know what that means? They had a military campaign that was completely calculated to destroy us and they must have planned it with ultimate precision. How does the Torah say? They happened upon you like, oh, what do you know? Here the Jews are. Amalek represents the force of coincidence. It's coincidence. Ah, It looks logical and it looks planned. You know, if you wait long enough, it will happen by accident. But it looks very purposeful, doesn't it? Yes, but there have been millions of years, you know. If you keep mixing the parts long enough, eventually they will organize themselves. If you have a lot of monkeys hitting typewriter keys long enough, they'll type Shakespeare. Really? But if you wait long enough, that's incredibly unlikely. You need your head ready if you think that way. First there's a story that there's been billions of years, and among billions of years there's chances that things can happen. That's an incredible series of, cho- I mean an unbelievable series of coincidences. You mean to tell me that the bees evolved what they needed at the same time as the flowers evolved what they needed? <laughs> one second. If the bees didn't have one little piece the flowers couldn't have been. And if the flowers didn't have one little piece, the bees couldn't have been. So like how did they how did they get it right when they both depend on each other when they weren't there beforehand? Look, there were a lot there were a lot of accidents, but <coughs> how did this, this creature that had a fin eventually form a leg? Well, the fin became a bit more like a leg and a bit less like a fin. Oh, so he couldn't swim as well? He's a dead duck, that duck. No, well, maybe maybe it became a bit more like a leg and also more like a fin and therefore like he had. But, oh, do we see any evidence of that? No, but, but we'll find it. <laughs> how did this forelimb become a wing? <coughs> how did this forelimb, that's incredibly adapted to its environment, how did it become a wing? Well, it got a bit more like a wing and a bit less like a forelimb. Really? Well then it must have gotten to a stage where it was a lot like a wing, and a l- very little like a like a forelimb, but it couldn't quite fly yet, right? I suppose so. Well, how did that? Th- if there ever was a dead duck, that must be it. <laughs> it's got a thing that's halfway between being a limb and uh, and a wing, but it's not, no longer a hand, and it's not yet a wing. <coughs> that's called survival of the fittest. That's that, that's called miracle, isn't it? <laughs> you wait long enough, <laughs> there are enough accidents, that's Amalek. Amalek is, it's accidental. That's what they are. It's all coincidence. What do you mean Hashem? It's all coincidence. That's the force they represent. And the Jewish people say, he's here and we saw it. So they try to kill us. Because as long as we're here testifying to that, they have no existence. So look what it means. They happened upon you by coincidence. They cooled you down. You know what the, the matter says? that All the nations were flocking towards Sinai. And, and, and Bilam told them that it's the Torah and it's your future. It's the future of the world. When Amalek raced ahead and attacked the Jewish people, the world stepped back. They saw, oh, these people are human after all. They, they rubbed their eyes and they shook their heads and they said, well, Amalek generated a few casualties and they, they, you see that they are vulnerable people. You can attack them. Sure, Amalek was badly defeated, but it was a war. They're not invulnerable. They're not invincible. And the world stepped back from the brink. Amalek achieved... Amalek achieved victory. The victory was that the Jewish people remained virtually unscathed and moved towards Sinai, but the rest of the world stepped back. Amalek is the gap between the Jewish people and the world. Amalek is the gap between the Torah and the world. Amalek is the gap of lack of knowledge. Amalek is the theory of evolution. Amalek is the theory that everything's complete accident. That's who they are. And what does sensual immorality have to do with it? Well, there's no bond between husband and wife, that's sacrosanct, that we are bonded to him in total... No... No bond, that means, that means an ultimate bondage in loyalty that's a total commitment. What do you mean commitment? It's all coincidental anyway, isn't it? You're just an animal, aren't you? Animals don't have a spiritual connection that's a total eternal dedication. <laughs> the force of doubt, <coughs> that's what Amalek is. You look at the world, Amalek says, well, it looks like this has been purposely, purposefully designed. Yep, it does. But it could be accident. <coughs> oh, so now you have some doubts in your mind. That's Amalek. That's what they are. That's exactly what they are. <coughs> <coughs> Before she would say that Bilam and Balak spells Amalek. You know that Bilam and Balak. Bilam and Balak, the king who wanted to destroy us, and the agent that he hired. <coughs> Put the names together. That's Amalek. <coughs> that's what they are. Because <coughs> they want to destroy us by spiritual curse. That's what Amalek is. He goes to the root. That's what Amalek represents. What is Haman? Haman is the king. Haman is the leader of Amalek that comes out right oh, to generations of history. He's that individual who is single-mindedly dedicated to destroying the Jewish people. <coughs> You want a picture of who Haman is? It's difficult to picture. It's difficult to picture this Haman. Just, this, uh, stay, stay with me. Here's an individual. Let's understand him. Haman is an individual who has nothing. He has nothing at all. Nothing at all. The major says he was a hair cutter, a, bar, a barber, right? a down and out nobody in a small village, someplace. In fact, in his youth, he used to cut Mordechai's hair. And suddenly this character with nothing... <coughs> <coughs> absolutely nothing a, a, a pathetic figure <coughs> suddenly through a series of, of, of weird and ununderstandable events becomes the most powerful man on earth second only to the king who's totally under his control and they have complete agreement between them <coughs> exactly what has to be done with the Jewish people <coughs> how does that happen? how is it that this individual do not come he had only one outstanding characteristic he hated Jews that's all and nothing else he didn't have any intelligence he was, he was dumb stupid he, he drove himself to his own destruction Mordechai used his, 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 his blind hatred for Jews to drive him out of his country. Mordechai drove him to his own destruction. Mordechai's plan was to drive him so crazy, so so fiercely wild in his desire to destroy Jews that he would unwind himself, which is what happened. We have to be a Mordechai to do that, because Eretz not not Yad uh, Russia. The world is given over to those evil people today. No question on which foot the on the shoe is. But Mordecai, he could stand up to him, so he stood up to him and he, and he, and he mocked him, he, he refused to stand up. He, what happened? <laughs> Haman is an individual who has nothing. But Hashem looks, looks at, his, at his creations and he says, this, this individual who has nothing but he hates Jews very badly, I could use you. And he elevates, the Jewish need, people need a lesson. And history must evolve the way it must evolve. Hashem elevates him to a power, to a position of unbelievable, unprecedented, unintelligible power. Inexplicable power. And it becomes, what does he use his power for? Nothing other than, he was the most powerful man on earth. He had family, he had wealth, he had fame, he had everything that a person could, especially a person like him, could ever want. That wasn't good. All he wanted, as long as there's one Jew, who won't respect me, Right? I cannot be happy. Not only can't be happy, i have got to wipe them all out. Ridiculous. It's psychotic behavior. Psychotic behavior. The person with that kind of mentality, who's so, he's given the responsibility for running an empire. You know that Achashverosh controlled the whole world. It wasn't just a country. You know that. The Mephoshim say that it was, what was unique about that phase in history was that every Jew on earth was under the dominion of one man. Not like today. Today when the European Holocaust occurred, so there were Jews in America. But in that generation, all 127 countries of the known world, from Asia Minor all the way through to North Africa, the whole known world at the time was under the dominion of one man. And when he issued a decree that all Jews should be destroyed by one day, it was 100% literal. There was no. This was not that like the Holocaust in Europe. This was a situation where every non-Jew on earth would have got up under divine decree and on one day seen to it that not one single Jew would have been alive. Do you know what that means? This was real. Who engineered that whole thing and looked with that hammer? <coughs> that makes sense? Well, there are two ways to look at it. Do you look at it and say, this is an incredible political event. That such a person should have such unique power in such a way that he called... Co- ridiculous. Ridiculous, but unique and, and aberrant. Coincidental. Or you can look at it and say, something's, something's going on here. This is not natural. That a person like that, with such that he should be put in that position of Hashem is telling us something. And the Jews of that generation, what did they do? They read the signs. They said this is not natural. They said that when, listen carefully, listen well, when Hashem hides himself, he always reveals himself. When he hides himself, he hides himself in such a way that it is so bizarre. He allows the world to take a course that seems to suggest that he's not around, but the course of events is so bizarre. That in its bizarre nature, you see that he must be doing this. Does it make any sense that an individual like that should become that powerful? I'm not sure you're with me. I think we need to speak it out a bit more clearly. What happened 50 years ago? <coughs> what happened 50 years ago? There was an individual who had nothing. He was a pathetic figure who had nothing. He was deviant. He was a deviant character. He was deviant. He had b- irrational behavior. He was psychologically unstable. He was untalented. He had nothing. But Hashem said, Ooh, he hates Jews very badly. I could use him. And he elevated him to power over 80 million Germans. This, this, this half crazed, deluded, psychologically unstable, bizarre character. Eighty million Germans? Do you know who the Germans were? They were the most stable, most intelligent, most cultured, most balanced individuals who could hope to come across. They're the highest level of... How does an indiv- What's going on here? How does an individual... Can you see what's going on? It would be funny if it weren't so tragic. How does an individual... He was a paper hanger in Vienna. He was an unsuccessful individual. Unsuccessful in his personal life, in his, his intimate life... He became the ruler of 80 million logical, kindly, kindly. You know that? Do you know that German travel brochures advertise? They did then and they still do. German Gemütlichkeit. Do you know what that means? Come to Germany where it's all warmth and pleasantness and we use our characteristics to treat. They were like that. A little joking. That's who they were. They end up under the dominion of a character. And, and to make it, in case that you. What's Hashem saying? He's saying, look, my people. You've caused me to hide myself in history. But I'm going to hide myself in a way that reveals me to you. I just want you to look. That's what the McGill is. I'm not going to write my name. I want you to see. So what am I going to do? I'm going to make it so bizarre that you can't miss the point. What does this bizarre individual do? In case the point's not yet clear, he gets up in front of 80 million Germans and he says, now we must build a nation of tall, blonde, blue-eyed areas. He's short, dark and brown-eyed, brown-haired. What is going on? You have to be rising not to see it. And they all nod and say, yes, let's go and do it. That makes any sense? Isn't that ridiculous? I can't manifest myself clearly in history. You caused me to be hidden, and of course that's your greatness, is that you reveal me. And where did he do it? Where did he do that to us? After he really it to us at Purim, how difficult is it to see? How much Jewish knowledge and Jewish history do you have to know? All you have to do is go back and read the Megillah itself. What happened then? The Jewish people needed to be taught a lesson. There was a slight defection from their obligations. Hashem took an individual who had nothing else going for him except hatred of the Jews. He elevated him in a bizarre fashion. I mean, the whole story is identical. Isn't it identical? And what do they do? Issue a, destruction, a decree of destruction against all Jews explicitly and clearly. But the only difference is the only difference is the Jews then saw it. They said, "This is not real. This is bizarre. This is crazy." They sat down and fasted for three days on Pesach. They sat down and fasted and cried out to Hashem. They read the writing on the wall. They, they reckoned you couldn't miss it. What did we do? What did we do? What did we do? What did our generation do? Did our generation come back to Hashem and say, "This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous that you put us in a situation like this. You 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 take the most civilized nation on earth." the most logical and cultured, the one that has the highest standards of demand from its leaders, that demands absolute rigorous logic and good conduct and good character. That's what they demand, that's what they are in every fiber of their being. And you bring to rule over them a deranged, psychotic, half-crazy, used to fall down on the floor and bite the carpet, you know that? In a certain segment of the American... population, I'm not going to mention names, a certain segment of the American population... Stood up and declared war on him. You know that? You know, that's what they did. I'm not going to mention who. It's a certain segment of the American Jewish population. That's when, the de- that, that's when he really went crazy. That's when he issued his order for final destruction of the Jewish people. The American Jews declared war on him. On the haven of their safety. But you know what he did? He fell down on the floor in front of his generals and he bit the carpet. He started kicking his legs and biting the carpet. In it. But they all stood there respectfully and you know, yes sir, we're going to build this tall blonde blue eye. What is going on? So did the Jews say, well, this is ridiculous, this has to be Hashem? The you said, no! Well, if you think carefully, it's because of what the Kaiser did in the First World War, and it's this and that, and there's a whole long sociological... have to be raving. have to be raving. Anyway. But that's Amalek, you see. It's hiding things that you don't see things clearly anymore. It's the doubt. That's what it is. It's a situation of doubt, so you can't read the most obvious signs. <coughs> Let's go back to the beginning of time. <laughs> what does Adam do when he eats the fruit of the? Hamina? did you eat from the fruit of the tree? Do you know what that tree is called? Do you know what, if you read the Kabbalistic writings, you know what they you know what they call that tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Ilana desfeta, the tree of doubt. Do you know why? Do you know what that tree is called in Torah? <coughs> Eitz Hadas Taiv Vera, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Listen well. Eitz Hadas Vera, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first question is what do you mean the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What do you mean good? Did you think about that? Surely this was the tree of evil, wasn't it? When he ate from this tree of evil, evil entered his being and entered the world and the world crashed. What do you mean the tree of the knowledge of good and that's confusion. That's what it is. You know what dais means? Intimate bonding and connection. That's what dais means. The first time it's used in the Torah is there. You know that? The first time dais is used in the Torah is in, this, in, the, in the context of total intimate bonding. Not in terms of knowledge. Knowledge is a secondary meaning. The first time dais appears in the Torah means bonding, not knowledge. It's hadas tovera means the tree of the bonding of good and bad. They get so intermingled that you can't tell them apart. When you eat from that tree, that's when your problems begin. If it would have been the tree of the knowledge of evil, there would have been no problem. It would have been so offensive and so odious and so disgusting that you would never have gone near it. But it's not a tree of of evil. It's a tree of good and evil mixed. And the good looks very attractive, so you justify the bad. And after you eat from the fruit of that tree, there's nothing left on earth that's all good or all bad. Nothing at all. Everything's confused. Everything bad has some justification. The worst thing you can think of always has some rationalization. And the best things on earth have some problem. Because he ate from the fruit of the tree of confusion. That's what it was. It wasn't the tree of bad. It doesn't say bad. It's wrong. It doesn't say it was the tree of evil. It says it was the tree of the admixture of good and evil. That's what it was. When he ate from the fruit of that tree, he became confused. That's what happened. He didn't become bad. He became confused. That's what happened. And what did Hashem do? Listen, listen to this. Adam eats from the fruit of the tree. What does he start doing? He hides. What do you mean, hiding? Excuse me, who are you hiding from? From he who sees through the trees? Adam hadn't forgotten who Hashem was. He just spoke to him face to face a few seconds before. He knew him like no other human being ever could have ever dreamed of knowing Hashem. He knows that Hashem sees through the trees and sees through him. (laughs) But he's hiding under the trees. Talk about confusion. Talk about confusion. He's hiding under the trees. Why is he hiding? Because he knows Hashem exists, doesn't he? Otherwise he wouldn't hide. He's only hiding because I know Hashem's around. But if Hashem's around, he sees you, doesn't he? Maybe not. Maybe he doesn't see me under this bush. What's happened to you? What could be more pathetic? Imagine the sight of this human being. He's cowering under a tree, <coughs> hiding because he knows Hashem's around. That's why he's hiding. But he's hiding. He thinks maybe Hashem doesn't see me. <coughs> confusion. Talk about confusion. It's a pathetic sight. But you know what must have been in his heart at that moment? <coughs> he must have been thinking to himself, cringing and cowering and hoping Hashem wouldn't see him. Hashem, please come down here and schlep me out. Fix me up, take me back to you. That's what he must have been thinking. He must have been there broken hearted in his confusion and his pain. And what does Hashem do? He comes into the garden and he says, Where are you? I don't see you. You want to play the game? That's the game you want to play. You want to set up a system of values where you think I cannot see you? Where are you? He only plays by the rules that you set up. It's mida, connected He only operates in the world the way you do. You want to hide under a tree, knowing that he can see through the trees and thinking that you can hide? Where are you? I can't see you. I, you know the word Ayaka stars eicha? You know eicha, the word that begins the Megillah of our destruction, destruction of Hashem's complete banishment into him hiding throughout history, that's eiko, same, same word, Ayeka. So what happens, Adam slouches out from under the trees and he faces Hashem, and Hashem says to him, Hamin Ha'ez, did you eat for, I don't know, I'm in mean doubt, Hashem says, and Haman is born. At that moment Haman is born, Hamin Ha'ez, did you eat from the tree of confusion? Did you? Did you? I don't know. That expression of the question, that word that indicates the gap between Hashem's knowledge and presence and manifestation on earth, and the fact that maybe he's not here, that's Haman, that's what he is. (coughs) Imagine the pain must have gone through him like a knife. Can you imagine? The pain of what he'd done, and, and, and being humiliated into having to realize that he's naked and hiding in the shame of his nakedness under a tree, and yet hoping that Hashem will discover him and, 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 and bring him back in closeness. And when finally he slept out and he faces Hashem, and Hashem says to him, Did you? I don't see you and I don't know anymore. I can't imagine the pain. <clears throat> Why did he eat from the fruit of the tree in the first place? This is our problem, in case you think we're talking here a story about a human being some time ago. It's you and me. It's not his problem, it's your problem. <laughs> you know the, words, the word doubt in Hebrew Sophic? The word for a doubt in Hebrew Sophic, you know that word never appears in the Torah? You know why? Because it's not on the film. Someone scribbled it up on the screen, but it's an illusion. You brought it into the world, man. It's not in my film. I don't project this onto the screen of reality. You've climbed up and written this thing up on the screen. You've created this thing, I didn't create any doubt in the world. Show me anything that Hashem created doubtfully. No, He created doubtfully. He either did or He didn't. You've made the confusion. <laughs> you know there's no word in Hebrew for doubt and there's no word for certainty, you know that? There's no words in Hebrew, you know that? Suffolk and Vada'i are words of rabbinic origin. Do you know the Torah doesn't have those words? Because every object in the world is a word of Torah, right? So if there's no word in Torah, and we give it a word, it means we're describing an illusion. Doubt and certain... You realize you can't be certain unless you can be in doubt. (coughs) You can't be certain about something if you couldn't doubt Are you with me? When something is clear to you, you're not certain about it, you simply know it, don't you? You see, we are so confused. That we say we're sure exactly when we're not sure. We say, I'm sure I saw him yesterday. That means you're not at all sure. If you were really sure you saw the person, you'd simply say you saw him, wouldn't you? So we, we coin words for doubt and certainty. But there's no such thing. shall never created anything doubtful in the world. We brought that into existence. We wrote that up on the fabric of, <coughs> of reality. We created Amalek. Doubt. We brought Amalek into the world. He hadn't eaten from the fruit of the tree and brought the gap into the world there wouldn't have been Amal and there wouldn't have been an Amalek why did he do it why did he eat that fruit incredibly he ate the fruit because he wanted to bring a gap into the world you know, he wanted, you know why he wanted to bring it. he knew what he was doing he wasn't confused before he ate it he was confused afterwards he wasn't confused before he was thinking very clearly before he was thinking wrong but very clear you know what he wanted He looked at the world and he said, (coughs) It's all so clear. What work is there for me? You can't shine a light in the light. You can't shine a light in the light. The Zohar says a light can only come out of darkness. The world is so light. What light can I I walk around with my candle? Walk around with my candle in the sunlight. That's what I'm here for. Let's make it a little dark. My candle will shine very bright. Hashem, you are so close to me, your presence is so obvious in the world, you're right here. What can I do to forge a connection with you? How can I move close to you? That's what I'm here for. He wasn't confused about that. (coughs) If you were a little bit more distant, if I could move away from you, then I could have the work and the pleasure and the exertion and the privilege of moving towards you. When you're married to someone and you love them very much, or you have a friend that that you're deeply attached to, right? And, and these two people are always very, very close. And they're totally loyal to each other. And suddenly you look down and you see there's a very thick iron chain that is bonding their ankles together. All concept of loyalty and love and bondage disintegrates. You've got no choice. That's not called loyalty. That's not called love. You know what love is and loyalty is? It's when this person is on one side of the earth and the other person's on the other side and haven't seen each other for who knows how long... And there's no evidence that they even exist anymore and they maintain their bond with each other throughout time despite indescribable obstacles. That's called love. That's, that's, that's worthy. So Adam, Adam said to Hashem, if I could move back from you a little bit and then I could move forward, <clears throat> then I'll have done something. I'm only doing it for you. I'm only doing this for you. How can I show my love for you? You put me in a situation with nothing to do. You told me, sit there and just don't eat that fruit while you do everything. That that shows my greatness. That shows my love for you. I want to die for you. I'll do anything for you. I'll go through death. He didn't forget the commandment. The commandment said, if you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll die. He said, i am prepared to do that for you. It's all for you. That's what I'm here for, is to get back to you. But at least let me do it myself. Let me get back. But the only way to do that is to have a gap. If I'm on the other side of the mountain and the ocean, I can swim it and climb it. He had a very, very clear calculation. He only did it to Shem Shemayim. And the result? He was right. He was awfully wrong. But there was... What was the rightness? What came out of that decision? The gap in the world. What came out of the gap? The Jewish people's history, which is an attempt to close the gap. And it's all of our void, and It's Torah. It wouldn't have been Torah in the world. There would have been nothing. All that we represent. All the work of 6,000 years of pain and brutality and agony. Which is our privilege. That's what we all want to hear because he created the gap. That's a awfully tragic miscalculation. And why is not the time to go into now? But that's what he wanted, and that's what he got. You know what the Kibbutz says? Who descended from Ham? Who descended from? Well, say with me carefully. You know what happened later in history. This thing repeats itself again and again and again. I'll keep you late. You know what happened later in history? Saul, King Saul, King Saul, from the same root as Esther, was given a chance to wipe out Amalek, just like she was. You know that the, the nation of Amalek in the time of Saul, the first king of the Jewish people. Amalek was a threat to the Jewish people. And Hashem gave him a divine instruction. This is your chance to wipe them out. And he was sent to battle against Amalek. Total decimation, absolute and total destruction of Amalek. You remember the story? And Saul and his people went out to destroy Amalek, and they they were victorious in the battle. And at the last moment when Amalek was almost no longer on earth, at the moment when all that was left was a few animals, and one man, Agag, the king, Saul had mercy on Agag and he let him live and a few animals one human being he let him live next morning Shmuel the prophet arrived and he arrived in the camp (coughs) and he perceived that Agag was still alive and he called Saul and he he called for Agag and he killed him on the spot killed him on the spot killed Agag on the spot he said why have you disobeyed Hashem and for this your kingdom has been ripped away from you But as as, as Shmuel turned in in disdain and in in censure of Saul, as he turned away, Saul grabbed his cloak and its corner tore off. As Shmuel turned to him and said, like that corner has been torn off, so your kingship has been torn away from you and your family forever. And Saul failed at his incredible cosmic level, we're not able to judge at our level, but he failed. And Amalek was killed. (coughs) But the matter says, the night before he was with a woman in the camp, and she was pregnant, and although he was destroyed, his seed was left in the world, and out of that Amalek they re they <coughs> re-reconstituted themselves, and they became the nation of Amalek. And who was born out of that? King Agag, Haman. That's where he came from. That's where he came from. And just like Agag was bent on destroying the Jewish people, and Saul was given the opportunity to kill him, why did Saul leave him alive? You know what Tzadokha Cohen says, who says much of what we're discussing this evening? You know why Saul left him alive? Saul made the same mistake as other Moreshah. Saul knew that he could wipe out Amalek. You know what it means to wipe out Amalek? It means that down here on earth they no longer exist. Do you know what it means if they no longer exist here? It means that in Shamaim their energy no longer exists. You know what that means? There's no gap anymore. <coughs> when Amalek disappears on earth, Hashem appears. That's a consequence. Amalek is the gap, the doubt. You don't see him. When Amalek disappears, there's no more gap. Hashem is here. Saul had the opportunity. He came within a hair's breadth. He destroyed the whole nation. There was one individual left. It was a unique point in history. And he said to himself, you know what happens if I kill him? No more free choice. No more work for us. Let me leave just one little speck and spark of Amalek in the world. Just a little bit so that we still have some work to do to come close to Hashem who thought that way once before? Adam Mauritian at the beginning of history. No less than that, he repeated the same. He was very great, so. Very knew what he was doing. But at his level, you know what the Gemara says? You know who came out of Agag? <coughs> you know who descended from him? Haman and Tanoim who learned Torah in Bnei Brak. Great sages of the Talmud who eventually ended up part of Judaism and became great sages of the Torah, descended from Agag, king of Amalek. What? Yep. Because when you bring the gap into the world, when you create the darkness, you can shine a light. What Saul did was, created a gap in the world, which was the force and energy of our destruction throughout all the subsequent ages, including Ahaman, who nearly succeeded. And Tanahim, learned Torah, which is the light that shines in the world, that negates the darkness. You can only have a light shining in the darkness if you have a darkness. And out Saul's calculation and miscalculation, came the force of evil and destruction and darkness in the world and came the ability to shine a light in that darkness that you go hand in hand, just like Adam Mauritian. There's much more to say but let's just summarize (coughs) what we've said. Purim is the time of celebrating the darkness. We put on masks. We try to look. We dress up like non-Jews dress up like what we're not. Because is a time of Hashem's being hidden. But that's not our purpose. Our purpose is not to hide. Our purpose is to put on the mask of a hiding so that we can shine through. That's what we want to do. Purim is the real receiving of the Torah. Purim is the receiving of the Torah which is the shining of Hashem's light in the world in a situation of darkness. That's real light. Sinai wasn't real light. Sinai was was coercion. Sinai was the spark of inspiration that began the process. But where we did our part, that was what Hashem did. Sana Hashem did. Sinai, Hashem gave the Torah with no part of ours. We were, we were pawns being coerced. They had a gun to our head. The mountain held over us. And that's not our greatness. Our greatness is Purim when we did it. Purim when all Hashem did was disappear. And we said, he's not disappeared. He's here We're his witnesses. That's not the greatness of Purim. You know what Purim means? Lots. You know what lots is? Chance. It cast the dice. No? How did Haman, you have to understand this. How did Haman try to destroy us? Chance. Will cost lots. Oh, it happens to be this. It happens to be that. Lady luck. And every time you say mazel tov and you think you mean good luck, you're speaking for Haman. Mazel tov doesn't mean good luck. You know what good luck means? When you say mazel tov, mazal tov, and you mean it with your, with your non-Jewish head, Good luck? Is that what you mean? When you go to this chasana or this... You mean, may lady luck shine upon you? May you pull the lever and get three cherries? (laughs) Is that what you mean? You know what mazal means? Mazal is from the Hebrew word nozel. It means to flow down from a higher dimension. Mazal means it should flow down from the source that you can't see down here. That's what mazal means. May there be an influence that shines upon this event. It comes from the source. May you be connected to the source. Not good luck. That's what they do to the concept. They take the concept of being connected from the source and say, no, it's accident, it's luck. The very word. <sighs> I have a non-Jewish head. They have a Jewish head. Mazal doesn't mean that it's disconnected. It means that it flows down from there. And we declare that. That's what mazal means. <laughs> that the mazal that comes from the root should be told with a tet. That's the first time the word appears. That is the goodness. That is the source of this thing. That's what it means. That's what you mean. The brocha. And you can do it. You can shine that light. You can bring it down. That's why you say it. You're not just echoing some empty statement. You're making it happen. That's a Jew. That's what you are. That is the source. That's what the Gemara means when it says, Haman min Torah Where do we find Haman in the Torah? We find him in those fateful and agonized and agonizing words. Hamina eats. Did you eat from the tree? The tree, eats in Hebrew, is always an expression of essence. Eats means intrinsic essence. Did you eat from the fruit of the tree? Did you take into yourself the essence of the confusion that i asked you to stay clear of? That you've become confused, you've made me manifest as kibiyoko confused in the world. From now on people aren't going to see, and from now on your work will be to close that gap. You brought it into the world, you created them. Amalek only exists in the world because of you, and Amalek only exists now in the world because of us. If you see it, and you see Hashem's hand in the darkness, you see that it's ridiculous in our explanation. It's bizarre. It's so bizarre it could only be a divine miracle that it happens that way. But at least not to go around saying, well, it's sociologically explainable. That's a response of a Jew. It's luck. It so happened. Germany. Happened to me. Why there? No doubt if you examine it sociologically you'll understand. What are you talking about? How could he have made it clearer? How could he have made it clearer? <laughs> could he have chosen any other nation? Could he have chosen anybody less suited? Could he have chosen anybody with a philosophy and a platform more bizarre and more inco- What... What more can he do? It, it, should have, I mean, it should have been a bizarre comedy. You know? It should have had 80 million Germans rolling on the floor, wiping their eyes with the tears of laughter for five minutes, and then, forgetting about it, institutionalizing him. Surely. <laughs> you have to see. And that's what Puri means. Puri means that when they cast the dice... And it appears to be luck like that we understand that there's a hand that moves those dots That's what we have to do. We have to take that chasm, that gap in the world. We have to close it. That's what we have to do. We have to get involved in Torah. Torah means that when they make the darkness, we shine the light. that's have to know that we cause that darkness to be in the first place. And our privilege and our only hope for us is that we act to close it. And uh, <clears throat> through that mechanism and through that consciousness of being able to see in the darkness because we live in a terrible darkness our work has to be to move from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to the tree of life that's in the center of god